Do you have anything to talk about in the notes? Jesus, fuck Baron Harkonnen, fuck. Yes, that's a very good summary of that character. Good job. Just, just, oh my god, Jesus, fuck. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Non-Toxic Fanboys Podcast, where the name is aspirational, and where we are still on Dune Watch, having reached the brand new 2020 film adaptation. I am, of course, joined by my very own brother. Scott, how far is the saga of Dune from over? That's hard to say, but my best estimate would be far. Interesting. So, after having discussed the 1984 film and the 2000 Sci-Fi Channel miniseries, we have arrived at the latest adaptation, a big-budget sci-fi blockbuster deal with all that that implies in a 2020-2021 film. I think we can skip our traditional non-spoiler segment because we've literally been talking about the exact plot points of this book and movie for the last two episodes already. Spoiler, it's an adaptation of Dune. So, let's get right into it with this latest adaptation. What are some things that you think they got right in this film? There are two things that this film did right that none of the other adaptations ever have that just thrilled me beyond reason. (laughs) Like, I fully acknowledge there's no reason these things should make me as happy as they do, but they just do. I'm one of the first in line often to make fun of people obsessing over, like, minute little details. Like, ooh, they got this little detail right. I'm so glad that they adapted that correctly. But something about these just makes me giddy with happiness. The smaller one is the ornithopters. Ah. None of the other adaptations have had fucking ornithopters. None of the ornithopters have actually been ornithopters. (laughs) Finally, the ornithopters are ornithopters. Well, it's like they say, let ornithopters be ornithopters. Oh, God, every time I saw them, I was so happy. And it's such a small thing that makes zero difference in the story whatsoever, but it just made me happy that they finally had ornithopters. (laughs) Uh, Maybe explain quickly what it is you found so disappointing about the prior designs. Well, the entire definition of the word ornithopter is a flying machine whose flight is powered by flapping wings. That's the entire defining characteristic that makes it an ornithopter and not some other type of flying machine, like an airplane or a helicopter or something. And none of the other ornithopter designs in any of these adaptations have ever had flapping wings. Not in the movie, not in the miniseries, none of them were ever actually ornithopters. They were just like gliders, or just regular planes, or some sort of sci-fi hovercraft thing that has no visible means of support in the air. But finally, the ornithopters are fucking ornithopters. And I know it doesn't matter, it doesn't change the story one tiny little bit. And if they hadn't been ornithopters, if they had just been floating bricks, the story would have been identical, and my enjoyment of the movie would have been mostly identical. But for some reason, just the fact that the ornithopters are actually fucking ornithopters made me unreasonably happy. (laughs) I will say, there are lots of design elements that don't necessarily have to be as they were described, or don't necessarily have to be focused on, that got a lot more focus in this movie than I expected. Well, I have some problems with some of the other designs, but you asked me what it got right. And yeah. that's one of the things that they really got right this time. The other thing that actually does matter and actually does affect the story that also just made me giddy with happiness was the book-accurate Duncan Idaho death. Yes. The entire fight at the end, actually their entire escape, Paul and Jessica's entire escape is far more book accurate than any of the other adaptations have been. All the other adaptations streamlined that to get through it more quickly. They cut out the entire step where they meet with Leah Kynes and go to the ecology station and then get attacked by Sautokar. 
and it doesn't affect the story that much. Actually, you could tell the story without it, as the other adaptations have shown. But God, that whole fight, Duncan guarding their retreat as they escape with Liet Kynes, and Duncan's fight against the Sarakar, knowing he's going to die, but just buying them time so they can make it through the secret tunnel. Oh God, that made me so happy to see. I had to rewind and watch that scene again, because the first time through, I just kept repeating to myself, Book accurate, Duncan! Oh! And, importantly, Duncan being essential for helping them escape. I mean, he died in the miniseries when they were escaping, but he didn't do anything that let them escape. He just told them to go and then died. Yeah, there was no reason why Duncan didn't escape with them in the miniseries. He just said, I'll stay behind, and then got blown up. It served no purpose whatsoever. Yeah. They did Duncan reasonably well in this movie. I have some quibbles with the characterization of various characters, but they did a really good job in this movie of showing that Duncan is important to Paul. Yes, absolutely. Because that's a big deal in the book, is how much Paul loves Duncan. And that's what makes Duncan's death meaningful, and that's why when Duncan comes back in the sequels, he actually matters, even though he's barely in the first book. He matters because he was important to Paul, because Paul loved him, and he died protecting Paul. That's what makes him important when he shows up again in Messiah. And this movie showed that. It showed that close relationship between Paul and Duncan, and it showed Duncan sacrificing himself to buy them time to escape. I thought they did that. That was just really... Oh, I love it so much. (laughs) That whole fight while they're... I love it so much. It's a relatively minor detail, and you could write around it and tell the story without it. It it sort of guts the importance of the Duncan Idaho character, but you could tell the story of Paul without having that aspect of it. But oh, they did it so well. They really, really did that very well. I loved it a lot. I think it actually was a little more important to get that right in terms of the relationship between Duncan and Paul than you implied. Because one of the things that I was talking about in our previous episodes about the other adaptations was that it's difficult to try to put in those genuine human relationships between the characters. A lot of the interactions are cold and calculated because everyone is doing their political maneuvering and that whole aspect of the story kind of overwhelms everything. Also, everyone is standing on ceremony an awful lot. Like, even Jessica and Leto often refer to each other as my lady and my lord duke. Everyone is standing on ceremony a lot. It's a very highly mannered society. It's a society that depends greatly on its well-developed norms. Yeah. That is something that is conveyed very clearly by all the adaptations. But one of the difficulties that I've talked about is putting in the human relationships to give us as viewers like a way into the characters and a way into a more emotional story, which is also a little difficult because Dune is one of those mid-century sci-fi novels which is a little light on characterization and heavy on plot and background. So I think getting the relationship between Duncan and Paul as casual and warm as they did in this movie really helped inject that human element into the film. The thing is, you can tell the entire story of the novel Dune basically without Duncan Idaho. You could cut him out of it, and it doesn't change the story substantially. I mean, you could get from plot point to plot point, sure. But, like, the story of the Atreides taking over Arrakis and then being betrayed by the Emperor who teams up with the Harkonnens to try to wipe them out, and then Paul and Jessica escape to the desert and join the Fremen, and Paul becomes the Fremen god-king, Muad'Dib, that whole story can be told. You could cut the character Duncan Idaho out of the story entirely, and it doesn't change much. Duncan only really matters if you're going to do the sequels, if you're going to tell the story of Messiah then you need to make Duncan important in Dune. So I understand why other adaptations would skimp on that character, because he isn't important to the story of Dune. But this movie just did it so well. Would you say he's less important to the story of Dune than he is to the saga of Dune? He's less important to the story of the novel Dune than he is to the series of novels Dune. (laughs) Yes. 
He's important in Messiah, and he has to be important to Paul for the story of Messiah to make sense. Yeah. So those are the two things that jumped out to me as things that this adaptation got really, really right. In terms of things that I was pleased to see in this movie, I want to talk about something else that's been one of your big talking points in our last couple of episodes, and that's the story element of Paul foreseeing the jihad in his name and the horror that he has at that. And I did not expect that to be foregrounded and emphasized as much as it was in this movie. Like, he not only has a vision of it, which Paul arguably had in the miniseries that was maybe a little unclear, but he explicitly says, I see a religious war of zealots fighting in my name and killing people across the galaxy in my name. Fighting under the Atreides banner. Yes. Worshipping at my father's skull, which is a nice detail they included. Yeah, they called out his father's skull already. Yeah, I did appreciate that a lot. It's just one scene, and we'll have to see how it plays out in the second half of the story. A lot of this stuff is hard to judge because it's only half the story. Of course. We'll have to see what they do in the other movie, assuming they make the other movie. I think the second movie got greenlit, like, right after this debuted. Okay. Dune Part 2 is coming out on October 20th, 2023, for what that's worth. Well, we shall see. But yes, they kind of already have done a better job than any other adaptation of showing what Paul sees and his revulsion to it. I mean, it remains to be seen how they show him trying to avoid it and his utter failure at avoiding it. But they have at least told the scale of the calamity that Paul sees coming. It's some very good groundwork, for sure. They also, along those same lines, they also spent some time with Paul and Jessica talking about the Bene Gesserit manipulating local populations and manipulating their beliefs. Yes, they made that very explicit. So that, like, when it comes up later that Paul is the chosen one, they've made it pretty clear who exactly has been doing the choosing. Which, again, is something they didn't really do in any of the other adaptations. Yeah, those elements that kind of undercut the traditional Messiah hero narrative, I was very glad to see made so explicit. That is something that was sorely missing from the other adaptations. So, yeah, I was glad to see that. Also, it was interesting the way that Jessica just presents it sort of -of matter-of-factly, that this is what the Bene Gesserit do, this is what they've done for us so that we can take advantage. And Paul is the one that sees it sort of more cynically. Jessica just says, you know, they've prepared the way for us so that we can take advantage and make a place for ourselves. And Paul is the one that says the Bene Gesserit manipulate the politics of the Imperium, and these people just believe what they have been told to believe. Yeah, well, they do kind of make the secret long-term programs of the Bene Gesserit very explicit in this. I mean, they just come right out and talk about the thousand-year-old breeding campaign. Well, that's not exactly a secret in the book, either. I mean, it's a secret from people that aren't Bene Gesserit, but... But yeah, this movie does also, like the other adaptations, they do present things as, like, info dumps that in the book are revelations that come later in the story. That is something that they do in this movie as well. To a lesser extent, but there's some of it still there. Well, what were some of those that stuck out to you? Well, the one that always sticks in my craw... Uh Uh-oh, we got a craw update. Is the one where it says that the guild navigators use the spice to be able to navigate. But that's sort of a revelation later in the story. Not just something that's casually mentioned on a data pad. I think that's included here just as one more way to emphasize to the viewer that the entire economy of this entire civilization runs on spice. I mean, at least they didn't show the navigators as some, like, giant, mutated, 12-foot-long thing in an iron-and-glass tank. Well, no, they didn't have the jellyfish navigator this time. At the very least, we were spared that. But there are other things we were not spared. But I think we were supposed to still be talking about things they got right. What else did they get right? What else did they get right? 
That's it. You're out of things I got right. Can I say this? I thought Oscar Isaac was very good as Leto. Oscar Isaac was very good. Yes. Like, he was clearly the best Leto out of all of the ones we've seen so far. I think that's fair. I thought that Duke Leto might get a little more to do in this movie than he did, ultimately. He did a lot of the same things that he did in the book, but I feel like there wasn't as much of an emphasis on him as I was kind of expecting. This being just the first part of the book and all. Well, I mean, what would you want him to do that they didn't show? Like, he doesn't do that much in the book. I would have liked a little more interaction between him and Jessica. I think they only had the one scene the night before the attack. That's true. I think a little more fleshing out of their relationship. He had a couple of good scenes with Paul, but maybe just a little more to flesh out the human relationships there. I thought they showed the relationship between him and Paul really well. But you're right, he doesn't have more than just the one scene with Jessica, really. But of course, Oscar Isaac is great. Oscar Isaac might be physically incapable of being bad in a movie. I haven't seen all of his movies, but that's the impression I get. I don't know, wasn't he in one of those terrible X-Men sequels? Oh my god, I think you're right. I think I remember going to see one of those X-Men sequels and then finding out later that, oh yeah, that was Oscar Isaac under 10 pounds of latex. Was he Apocalypse? Okay, I looked it up to see if my memory was right that Oscar Isaac was Apocalypse, and the first headline in the Google result is, Oscar Isaac admits X-Men Apocalypse was excruciating. That's what I've heard. It wasn't as excruciating to watch. It was fine. It was a perfectly acceptable X-Film. Anyway, we're not talking about that. We're not doing our X-Men Cinematic Universe podcast. Let's talk about some of the other casting and characterization choices. We mentioned Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho and Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto. What are some of the other casting choices that you think are notable, positive or negative? On the positive side, I thought Timothy Chalamet was actually pretty good as Paul. He looks the part really well. He looks like a kid. And I think that's important, because none of the other adaptations have really shown just how young Paul was supposed to be at this point. He is just a kid. And this is the first time they really show that. He looks very young, and so his inexperience shows through. He really does convey the youth of the character very well. I wonder how that'll grow into what he's going to have to do over the course of the next movie, as he takes on the messiah role and eventually politics his way into the emperor's chair. Which was another little detail I was surprised to see that they kept in, in the discussion with Dr. Kynes, when he's already talking about how to politically maneuver around the Emperor. And she kind of has to point out that, like, you're a little boy hiding in a hole in the ground. (laughs) Shut up. I did make a note of that. I wasn't even thinking of later in this story, but I was wondering, like, how are they going to make Timothy Chalamet look like a grown-up if they do Messiah or Children? Like, that was one thing that the miniseries did rather well, is at the beginning, Alec Newman is just like a petulant, not a kid, because he still looks like he's in his 20s, but he's just like this kind of petulant young guy. And then in the later part of the story, he does look like he's been hardened, like he's grown up some. His face even looks different. Yes, that's one thing that I'll be very interested to see if Timothy Chalamet can adapt to, the hardness that the character develops. One characterization that I really didn't like at all was Gurney Halleck. Gurney Halleck was not much of a factor here. Gurney Halleck is not a gruff, hard-ass taskmaster. Gurney Halleck is much closer in personality to Jason Momoa's performance. There's that duality to Gurney that I don't think anyone's quite gotten in any of these adaptations, because he is a tough fighter, extremely protective of the Duke, extremely protective of Paul, paranoid for both of them, but also he plays the lute and quotes from literature. They got some of his quotes in here, 
there are so many of the little details that they put in. Like, he has his orange Catholic Bible when they get to Arrakis. I wondered if that was supposed to be the orange Catholic Bible. It must have been. Like, it's just shown for a moment, and not called out at all, but I wondered if that was what it was supposed to be. Like, just a small reference to it. Yeah, because then he mutters a quote to himself as they get off the ship, too. But, like, I'm thinking of the scene from the second half of the book, where Paul and Gurney have their reunion. Yes. And Paul is just hugging him. He keeps calling him Gurney Man, Gurney Man. And Gurney is hugging Paul and calling him, You young pup, you young pup. I don't see that scene at all with this Gurney portrayal. The thought had occurred to me, how is that going to look when it's this Josh Brolin performance doing that emotional, like, joyous reunion with Paul later in the story? That's going to be pretty strange. I could picture that with Jason Momoa's performance as Duncan. If you just called that character Gurney Halleck, I would say, okay, yeah, I could see that, absolutely. But I don't see that with the portrayal of Gurney in this movie. I mean, Paul and Duncan did the joyously run to each other and hug a lot thing like three times in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Also, Thufir is not much of a factor at all. Thufir's also almost a total non-factor. What little there is of Thufir, I think, was pretty cool. I think it's an interesting portrayal of the Mentats when they're calculating something to kind of, like, roll their eyes back and their eyes go white. The Harkonnen Mentat did the same thing at one point. I think that's an interesting way to portray that. Otherwise, as a character, he was, like, not even there, unfortunately. The other thing is that apparently they turned the Sook Doctor conditioning and turned it into some sort of, like, psychic sensing thing where he can, like, read Paul's vital signs by rubbing his fingers over his shoulders. And, I mean, I guess it's not as bad as the weirding modules from the 1984 movie, but it's still kind of, like, why did they need to do that? I think that's trying to fit into the whole aesthetic of Dune as extremely far in the future, but at the same time completely analog. Like, the futuristic but not digital aesthetic that is somewhat unique when you think of, I mean, obviously, like, sci-fi blockbusters, but, like, every sci-fi franchise and everything. So you have people fighting with knives and swords almost exclusively. You have the Mentats instead of any, I mean, computers, obviously, but any sort of, like, instrumentation. And as part of the medical practice, you don't have a lot of medical devices. You have someone with super special super training. Eh, that just came off as weird to me. I mean, I get that. And this movie does the same crime as the 1984 movie, where they have someone get shot while their shield is activated. After making an entire point about how nothing moving fast can get through the shield, they have Duke Leto be shot in the back while the shield is activated. I actually thought it was kind of neat when Leto was shot, and then later on when someone was trying to shoot Duncan where they shot the dart at him, and it visibly struggled with the shield. Like, the dart slowed down and got through the shield. Like, they didn't just, like, shoot him through it. I... I, The whole point of the shield is that it prevents projectile weapons from working on you. That's the whole point. If they make a new projectile weapon that works through the shield, it completely invalidates the reason for having the shield. And they didn't have to do that. All they had to do was just not have Leto activate his shield before he goes to check on Mapes, and then they could have just shot him in the back, and it would have been fine. They, like, went out of their way to do this stupid shooting him through the shield thing. I mean, honestly, while, of course, on a special effects level, the shields in this movie are the best in any adaptation, of course, it's just been so long that the CG technology for it is actually pretty good now, I think the personal body shield is something that you don't have to include in your adaptation. Like, it doesn't have to be in the movie at all. Well, the importance of the shield is the interaction between the shield and the laser guns to explain why nobody uses the laser guns. 
Like, if you have these laser guns, why wouldn't you just use them to wipe out all your enemies? Well, if one of them has a shield, you're fucked. That's really the importance of the shield, is to explain some of that analog nature of the setting. But if they don't include that detail, then you're right. There isn't really much of a reason to have the shields in it at all. You could cut them out of the story and be mostly fine. I mean, they did actually portray the laser guns, which the other adaptations never did. And I don't remember people really firing them in the book. Honestly, they talked about them a few times. But they did actually, like, show the laser guns in action a few times here. So that was neat. The other thing that I think really just isn't necessary to keep in your adaptation of Dune is walking without rhythm to keep from attracting the worm. Because any time an actor tries to do it, it is only extremely silly. Like, it is only ever a Monty Python weird walk. You're right, but also there's no way you could cut that out. Like, that's the whole point, is that rhythmic sounds attract the worm. Yeah, that's why you set a thumper to distract it someplace else. Or set a thumper to attract it. Yeah, but that's not going to help you walk across the desert. I mean, you have to have that. And that's one of the things they always fuck up, too. Because at the end of this movie, when they're all leaving to go to Siege Tabor, they're all walking, like, just normally at that point. And also, none of them are wearing their masks or their hoods from their still suits, so they're just letting gobs of moisture fly off into the air. The still suits are something else that no adaptation ever gets right, because none of them ever want to cover their actors' faces. That's understandable enough, but as we've learned, in Dune, as in real life, you don't go anywhere without your mask. Also, no matter how many times they do the scene where Liet Kynes is adjusting everyone's still suit, and then she gets to Paul, and holy shit, your still suit is already adjusted desert style? How the fuck did you know how to do that? In none of those scenes does Dr. Kynes ever make any significant adjustments to anyone else's suit. Like, there's no difference to how any of them are wearing the suit. Yeah, they're basically just, like, a little loose, and she's tightening them up was about how it was portrayed in this movie. Dr. Kynes, I think, was portrayed pretty successfully here. I think they got across her dual allegiances, or her primary allegiance to the Fremen, and I think the development of her opinion of the Atreides was portrayed pretty well. I thought it was interesting the subtle changes they made to the portrayal of Liet Kynes. Because in the book, when the carry-all doesn't show up because of Harkonnen's sabotage, and they have to rescue everyone off the harvester, there's nothing else that could be. Harkonnen agents sabotaged the carry-all, so it didn't show up. There's no denying that. But, like, there's not really anything they could do about it, because they expected Harkonnen sabotage, they're the Harkonnens. In this one, the way they changed that scene, so it's just an equipment malfunction... On the one hand, it gives Liet Kynes a lot more deniability so that she can say, well, what am I going to tell the Emperor? That your equipment failed? Equipment fails all the time. It's Arrakis. On the one hand, it gives a lot more deniability of the Emperor's collusion with the Harkonnens. But on the other hand, Dr. Kynes makes that collusion a lot more explicit when she just says flat out, I've been ordered not to see anything. I've been ordered not to report this. So on the one hand, it gives the Emperor a lot more deniability within the story, but on the other hand, it makes it a lot more explicit to the audience. They also had the scene with the um, spice silos when the Duke went to that hangar where there were only like a few of the containers there that gives the very heavy implication that anything that goes wrong is Harkonnen sabotage, but it's not specific Harkonnen sabotage in terms of, like, taking the carry-all away or specifically sabotaging equipment, but rather leaving them insufficient and broken-down supplies in any way they possibly could. What did you think of the way that they modified Dr. Kynes' death? Because, of course, in the book and previous adaptations after the attack on the Atreides and after Dr. Kynes helps Jessica and Paul escape, Dr. Kynes is then captured by the Harkonnen and specifically murdered by the Harkonnen. Here, she helps them escape 
And then rather than being set loose on the desert and dying in a spice blow, she instead is just stabbed by a Sardaukar who runs up to her and then attracts a worm to devour all of them. I thought that, as much as it is a definite change, was still a pretty good death scene for that character. I think that was pretty successful. The change was all that more egregious because it came, like, right after the stunningly book-accurate Duncan death. (laughs) Like, I was still sort of on a high from the Duncan death being so close to the book. I'm fine with the change. It doesn't really affect much. I guess it gives Liet Kynes, like, a little bit of revenge. It has her sort of a little bit more explicitly turn against the Emperor. It does give her a little more agency in death than just, like, being stranded by the spice blow and waiting for the explosion. I did love the small little detail where there's water leaking from her still suit from where she got stabbed. I thought that was cool. Yes, absolutely. One little detail that I wish they had kept in that scene. In the book, Dr. Kynes has this whole internal monologue as he's dying in the desert, and it ends with, I am a desert creature. And I just wish that she had still said that right before the worm came along and devoured all of them. I think that would have been cool. I like that she just sort of, like, pounds her fist in the sand to call the worm, because they make such a big deal about how any rhythmic noise will attract the worm. You know, the harvesters attract the worm. You can't walk normally because it will attract a worm. And yet, when they want to call a worm deliberately, they still use this particular piece of equipment. Like, they have to have a thumper in order to call the worm, when the entire rest of the time, they have to go so far out of their way to avoid attracting a worm. That dichotomy always seemed a little weird to me. Like, in my mind, I always just sort of pictured a Fremen walking out into the desert and then just, like, stamping their foot down, like Shawn Michaels tuning up the band. Oh my god. You do not want to try to super kick the worm. The worm will no-sell pretty much anything. But that sort of made that contradiction a little more explicit. Like, why did she need the thumper in the first place if she could just lay there and pound her fist on the ground and get eaten by the worm? Well, I think usually the thumper would be used to attract a worm to a very specific spot, which is not the spot where you yourself are standing. Okay, yeah, that's actually a good point. You'd want to be off to the side so you can run up with the maker hooks. You wouldn't want to be, like, the target. That's actually a very good point. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Again, do not try to super kick the worm. Although if you run up and try to super kick it from the side, it's probably not going to notice. It'll no-sell that for sure. Although if you lose your balance trying to balance on one foot in the sand while kicking the worm, if you lose your balance, you may get, like, sucked under. That's not going to be pleasant. Oh, then you will be a desert creature as well. The meeting between Jessica and Shoutout Mapes is something else that's translated really accurately from the book. Although I think it loses a lot without Jessica's internal monologue, because you really don't know what the hell is going on or why she's saying the things she's saying. It does. I was surprised that they kept the part where Shoutout Mapes brought forth her Chris knife and asked Jessica if she knew what it was. And in the book, Jessica says, it's a maker, and Mapes immediately screams, and then Jessica thinks... Maker really means something. I was going to say maker of death. And it's very good that she interrupted me by screaming. And they kept that, where she starts to say that, and then Mapes interrupts her when she says maker. But, like you say, without her internal monologue explaining that, it is not explained. One other detail they had in this movie that isn't really in any of the other adaptations is a lot of the, like, Atreides-specific language and the house-specific languages. The battle language. They had battle language. Like, they have battle language, sort of, in the 84 movie. There's, like, one bit where they're, like, monitoring signals and they pick up something and it's in a different language. But in this one, they sort of show it explicitly. Some of the Atreides troops talking in a different language, the Harkonnen troops talking to each other in a different language. 
Paul and Jessica signaling to each other, signaling to the Atreides troopers with their hand signals in the Atreides language. They show that really explicitly several times. Yeah, everyone has their own language here. The Sardaukar have their own language. I was a little surprised there was so much of the uh, battle language sign language. That, I think, was done very effectively, too. Yeah. I think, in general, the film's portrayal of the Fremen was pretty effective and pretty successful. And in particular, Javier Bardem as Stilgar, I think, was really, really good. For the amount that he had to do in this first part of the story, I think Stilgar was portrayed really well. He's severe, extremely blunt, extremely matter-of-fact, but not simple-minded. And that's something that it's easy to get wrong in a movie, especially with a character you're not spending a lot of time with, that he's extremely blunt, but not unkind, not unwilling to revisit his assumptions. Like, he comes around pretty quickly on Jessica. Like, as soon as she bests him briefly, he's like, oh, I misjudged you. Unlike poor Jameis. Yeah, can we talk about Jameis for a minute? Because that's something they did change. And I think it's fairly substantive. They made Jameis just really angry and antagonistic toward Paul and, like, relishing his death at his hands. Whereas in the book, he's just sort of embarrassed and wants to save face by showing that he wasn't really defeated by this kid. But in this movie, he's very much more angry and antagonistic and hateful. That is certainly emphasized a lot more than you'd expect. Yeah. Also, the bit with Chani, where she says, like, Jameis is a good fighter, he won't make you suffer. It'll be a great honor for you to die holding this knife. (laughs) That's a bit of a change from Chani's portrayal in the book, I think. She's not as, like, sarcastic like that. I think that's less sarcastic and more just the Fremen being extremely straightforward and blunt. I mean, from her perspective, she's just met these people who aren't Fremen and don't know how to fight like they do, and she's pretty sure that he's just going to die, and this is only going to take a couple of minutes. Yeah, but there's no need to rub salt in the wound. (laughs) Also, of course, that's pretty much the only thing Zendaya gets to do as Chani in this film. Well, because of where they cut the story off, like, Stilgar is barely in it. Chani is barely in it. They cut the movie off before the part where the Fremen, like, do anything. The Fremen barely appear, and then it's the end of part one, so... Yeah, what do you think about where they cut off this film in the story, and the ways that they, like, wrapped it up to try to feel like a complete film? Or did they even try to make it feel like a complete film? Because... I realize it's very hard to do with one part of a story like this, but it really felt to me like, you know, they just decided we're at two and a half hours, time to stop. I think they put a little more thought into it than that, but I'm not sure there's anywhere better they could have cut it off. Like, it was two and a half hours, so if they're going to cut it off somewhere, it would have to be earlier. And, like, it depends on where you want to cut it off. Do you want to leave a cliffhanger for part two? Or do you want to try to find, like, something that wraps up this part of the story? Like, they could have had Paul and Jessica fly into the sandstorm chased by the three torpedoes and then cut to end of part one. Paul and Jessica will return in Dune part two. You know? The escape from the Harkonnens is far from over. Or, like, if they want to have, like, a big action finale, they could have ended the movie right after the Duncan Idaho fight when they're escaping through the tunnels. Respect to my real hero, Duncan. But, like, if you're gonna cut it off in the middle of somewhere, I think where they did it was as good as any other place? I suppose. I mean, I can't really give them any more credit than that. It's as good as any other choice. I can't think of anywhere else where I would say, oh no, they definitely should have cut it off there. There's no part that strikes me as the obvious place they should have done instead, so I guess it's fine? I suppose... I mean, you're right that there isn't an obvious place to do it. Which obviously is part of the problem when you're making this movie. 
Let's talk about a characterization that I am not as positively disposed toward. Would you like to discuss the Baron Harkonnen? Oh, God. The Baron Harkonnen. The Baron Harkonnen, the flying fat man. This is... A lot of these adaptations have their own flaws. Yeah. And a lot of the, like, various changes and emphasis choices that they make in different adaptations are kind of neither here nor there. Like, some of them are better than others, but none of them are really outstanding, and none of them are really terrible. Except the Baron. They always do this with the Baron. I'm begging for one of these movies to have the Baron from the book instead of the Baron from the 84 movie. (laughs) Why is the Baron flying? Why is the Baron flying while wearing a robe that drapes 25 feet below his body? Well, for the aesthetic. Why is the Baron swimming in motor oil? And he doesn't even have a snorkel. Is he breathing motor oil? Is that why his voice sounds like that? Because he's amphibious for motor oil? It's the evil version of the Bacta tank. Why does the Baron's voice sound like the cyborg Mentat from the Dune 2000 video game? (laughs) Why is the Baron wearing half a fat suit? Oh, God. I would like to request just a moratorium on putting actors in fat suits. Like, until we can lock this thing down and figure out if there's any way to do it that's not terrible. Just just stop. We can just stop. We don't have to do this as a society. You could just cast a fat guy, if you're really that desperate. Yes! Thank you! I don't think necessarily having to have him as the floating fat man is a part that absolutely needs to be kept from the book, because that's a little uncomfortable. He wasn't floating in the book! Okay. I don't think he necessarily has to be an evil fat guy. At all. But. If you want to keep the villain as an evil fat guy because he's an evil fat guy in the book, cast a fucking fat person! Louis Anderson as the Baron Harkonnen! Huh? Well, at least he doesn't have a support staff of twinks. But the thing is, they put Stellan Skarsgård in, like, half a fat suit. He's got this giant gut that extends, like, two feet out in front of him. And his back is, like, thin and normal. It's so bad. It's so bad. The neck piece, the chin piece, it's so bad. But, like, they only did the front. It's also very bad. Everything about the Baron is terrible. His weird voice is terrible. The half a fat suit is terrible. The floating in the air is terrible. The robe that extends 20 feet below him while he's flying is terrible. The bathing in motor oil is terrible. (laughs) Like, is this a worse portrayal of the Baron than the 84 movie? No. You don't think it's that bad? I don't think it's that bad. There's less homophobia, at least. There's absolutely less homophobia. So far. We'll have to see what they do in part two. There are no little boys. There are no twinks. Timothy Chalamet is the only twink in this movie. And the only one with any interest in him is Duncan. And by the end of part two, he's going to be a twonk. We'll see. What kind of fat suit are they going to put on Timothy Chalamet to make him look like a grown-up? Oh my god. (laughs) Oh my god. The portrayal of the Baron is one of the worst things in this movie. It is truly terrible. Well, luckily for you, there's a lot less of the Baron than there was in the other adaptations, because there's a lot less of an emphasis on his whole, like, plotting and scheming, in part because I don't think they wanted to cast anyone as the Emperor until they're making part two. Also, I don't think they wanted to cast anyone as Fade Rautha until they're making part two. Yeah, the absence of Fade is also... Like, he should at least be there. He should be someone the Baron consults. I really just think they wanted to give themselves the freedom to cast a big name that they didn't have to have around for five minutes in part one. Especially since part two is not going to have Jason Momoa, it's not going to have Oscar Isaac. Also, Batista as Raban is... I know you've talked about the characterization you want for Raban and Batista ain't it. Not at all. 
Although, closer than one might have expected, I mean, he's still petulant and kind of unintelligent, but he's not, like, nothing more than a petty bully. I mean, he's Batista, he's a big buff dude. Raban is someone who exerts the power of his position, exerts the power of his wealth, exerts the power of his family, exerts the power of his relation to the Baron. Batista is just a big, strong dude who exerts his power of power. It's a totally different characterization of Raban, and I'm not a fan of it. Yeah, that's fair. I'm not too invested in Raban one way or the other, but that's totally fair. And again, there's so much less emphasis on the Harkonnens in this one than there was in either of the other adaptations we've talked about. That's true. The miniseries spent a lot more time on Harkonnen scheming and political maneuvering. And the movie spent a whole lot of time on screaming and flying. If they ever do another adaptation and it has the Baron as close to the book Baron as the Duncan Idaho death was to the book Duncan Idaho death, oh my god. (laughs) I will be the one audibly screaming fucking finally in the middle of the theater. Assuming we can go to theaters by then. Well, I don't know. I mean, the miniseries was 22 years ago. By 2044, maybe we can go to movie theaters again. I'm not making any promises, though. Since I cited the Baron as one of the worst things in this movie, you want to talk about the other worst things in the movie? Sock it to me. I don't know if this falls under cinematography exactly, but the color and color grading in this movie is just fucking terrible. Yes, it's got that big-budget film disease. I want to take this entire movie and turn the contrast up by about 50. Like, they have a scene where Liet Kynes is pointing out, look at the spice field. It's a rich spice field. You can tell from the color. And I'm like, no, I can't. I can't tell any difference in color there. And the whole thing is so dark. Like, everything inside is so dark. And then every time they switched to an outdoor scene, I felt like Han Solo. Instead of a big dark blur, now I see a big light blur. I understand wanting to have a contrast where when you go outside in such a harsh desert environment, the light is kind of blowing everything out. Like, I understand wanting to have that as, like, a subliminal impression. But yeah, the color grading leaves everything washed out. The entire sequence on Caladan is just like everything is overcast and kind of bluish gray. Everything on Arrakis is overwashed in brightness. The interior scenes, like you say, a lot of them are really, really dark. And like, I don't think it's the color reproduction on my monitor. Like someone might say, well, you should go see it in a theater the way it's meant to be seen. This is one of those directors who's whining about, like, seeing theatrical, theatricalisms theatrically, right? Seeing it in a theater would only address one of the problems. Yeah. Like, if you're in a pitch-black theater, then maybe how dim the whole fucking movie is wouldn't be as much of a problem. Yeah, maybe the blacks would have a little more depth. Like, don't try to watch this movie during the day. You won't (laughs) be able to see anything. Don't try to watch this movie with a light on in the room. You won't be able to see anything. You need to be in a pitch black room at night with no light other than the screen you're watching, and then maybe you'll be able to make out those interior scenes. Are you saying maybe I shouldn't have had the uh, Google Doc I was taking notes in open on the other screen when I was watching it? I couldn't see anything. You know that Sardaukar scene? Where they have, like, the field of corpses that they're draining all the blood out of? I didn't notice the corpses until my second viewing. Oh my god. (laughs) The whole thing is so washed out, I couldn't see a fucking thing! Everything is dim, everything is washed out, everything blends into each other. I want to take this entire movie and turn the brightness up by 15, the contrast up by 50. Other than the color grading and the contrast and all that, I think visually, a lot of the design elements were really, really good. 
a lot of the ships. You already mentioned the ornithopters, the guild liner when they were traveling to Arrakis. I think a lot of the design elements of the movie are really slick. The one thing I wasn't crazy about was the Spice Harvester. I appreciated that it wasn't just a copy of the Spice Harvester from the 84 movie, but, like, where do they store the harvested spice in that thing? It's so small. It's just a little crawler going around. I thought that was what those balloon-like things that were blowing up were supposed to be. Yeah, but the balloons were on the carryall, not the harvester. Hmm. One design element that I didn't really get was why Duke Leto had to be wearing Gears of War body armor. Oh, for the landing on Arrakis? Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. Wouldn't he just be, like, in his military uniform and cape or something? You'd think. Like, if you want to put that on Gurney, it's fine. It would make sense if they thought there was a threat, and so they wanted to put armor on the Duke, but then why aren't Paul and Jessica also protected? Well, they're not going to want to bulk up Timothy Chalamet until he's doing, like, the fight scenes as a Fremen, like the flash-forward that he has toward the end of the film. I think it's notable that, other than the god-awful color grading, and it's more than just the color grading, but that's the best word I can think of, just the color of everything, the color, the brightness, the contrast, all of that. Other than that, most of the things that I thought were really terrible in this movie are things that they carried over from the 84 movie. Like the depiction of the Baron. Like, there's so many things that are just sort of part of the Dune mythos now that it finds its way into these later adaptations despite not actually being in the novel Dune. It's more of the cultural memory of it, I suppose, right? Like, why did this movie have to start with a voiceover? Other than because the 84 movie started with a voiceover. Yeah, the way they went about some of the context setting and info dumps was interesting. They threw out a lot of the proper nouns and technical terms, like more than I expected. One thing I will say, the info dumps in this movie weren't any more subtle than they were in earlier adaptations, but they at least felt like they went by faster, like they just got them out of the way and they didn't like stop the entire movie for 20 minutes for it. No, they never stopped the movie completely to stand around and explain it to us. I just kept like noticing when they would throw in a term just as a piece of set dressing almost. They would just throw out terms without just stopping the movie to explain everything. Well, that's the way those things should be used. Like, they should just be part of the world that appears and you understand from context, not something that has to be stopped and explained. Like, that's the way stuff like that should be used. Like, nobody in real life stops to explain the terms they're using. They just use terms because people know words. Yeah, generally. I mean, the characters don't have to explain to each other what the Landsrod is or the Padishah Emperor of House Carino. Although, I'll give this much to them, no other adaptation had a thing to say about the old Duke. <laughs> and here we have his portrait, we have people talking about how he fought bulls and got got by one. That is very surprising to me that that made its way in here. I don't actually remember, because it's been a while since I read through the entirety of the first novel. Like, are those details actually in the first novel, or are those things they just sort of picked up from the Dune mythos in general? No, that's in there. Okay. When they're setting things up, when they get to Arrakis, there's a whole bit where Leto... Oh yeah, there's a whole scene about the bull's head, yeah. Yeah, where they're going to put the bull's head, where they're going to put his portrait. Yeah. That much is explained, that they have the head of the bull that killed him. Including that little detail, I think, is the sort of thing that makes the world of the movie a little richer, and it adds another layer when, after the attack, the confrontation scene between the Baron and Duke Leto, I think, is in the dining hall where the bull's head is, and, like, the camera lingers on it for a moment. Yeah, Leto is, like, looking up right at it. Yeah, that, I think, adds a really nice layer to that bit. 
So there is an actual reason to get that detail in there. It's not just, hey, the fans will know this. Also, again, the way they presented it is just like, it's not something they stop and explain. It's just something that's known, that's referenced. It makes it feel like it's part of the world, not information they're trying to convey to the audience. Yeah, that much was done very well. This movie is really good at that, like making information feel like something that's part of the world that people are naturally discussing, not something that the movie is trying to explain to the audience. That is one place this movie did very well, pretty consistently, I think. Yes, but Dr. Kynes didn't stop and tell us what's processed in the thigh pads. That's what I'm really wondering. On that note, (laughs) overall... Despite the problems that we've talked about with some of the production design, some of the characters, with the Baron, good God, overall, I think it was a pretty successful adaptation. I think it was a pretty good movie. I think it was good as far as it goes. It's really hard to judge this because they haven't done the end of the story yet. That much is true. Like, they sort of set up a bit of a conflict where Gurney doesn't like Stilgar. That may or may not pay off later, depending on what scenes they choose to include or exclude from the adaptation of the rest of the book, you know? Yeah, I definitely want to see how they handle Gurney in the next part. They don't really have anything about how they begin to suspect that Jessica is a Bene Gesserit infiltrator who's conspiring with the Emperor and the Harkonnens which sets up Gurney's suspicion of her later after the reunion. Yeah, there's absolutely nothing about that. I think it's pretty obvious we're not getting anything else with Thufir, like any of the stuff that he does in the back two-thirds of the book. Like, we don't even know if he survived or not yet. Yeah. So that's all still up in the air. I think this is a pretty good adaptation as far as it goes, but that judgment is very much contingent on how do they finish it? How do they tell the end of the story? Yeah, so far so good, basically, is where I am. Like, if I had to grade it, I couldn't give it anything other than an incomplete. (laughs) An incomplete, E for effort. Yeah, I want to see how they handle Gurney in the next part. I hope, given where we are in the story now, that Zendaya has a lot more to do in the next movie, because she had nothing here. (laughs) Well, like I said, the movie ends as soon as she shows up, so... Basically, yeah. But I want to see how they treat Zendaya and the rest of it. I want to see how they portray Stilgar and the rest of it. I want to see how they portray Gurney and how they reconcile the reunion from the book with this sort of gruff, implacable characterization they gave him here. I want to see what they do with Fade and how they set that up since he's been absent until now. Yeah, they'll have to have Fade, they'll have to have the Emperor, so there could be a little more emphasis on the scheming elements there. Although, once the Harkonnens take the planet back over again, they're not scheming as much anymore. All the scheming was done before the movie started. I mean, they haven't even gotten to the siege yet. They haven't even made Jessica a Reverend Mother yet. Like, we're still so early in the story. I was going to mention that next. The way that Reverend Mother Mahayam was portrayed here will be interested in seeing how they portray Jessica and the old Reverend Mother at the siege. I think that'll be interesting to see how they handle that and maybe even Alia. God, I don't know. Like, there's so much left that they haven't even gotten to yet. It's... No, absolutely. But so far, so good. I'll give them that much. Yeah. I think that will do it for this discussion of Dune 2020-2021. But I believe that the saga of Dune Watch is far from over. Is that right? Well, there are still more Dune adaptations we haven't reviewed yet. Oh, there's more Dune. Yes. Because the Sci-Fi Channel, after the success, I suppose you could call it, of their (laughs) Dune miniseries, did a sequel miniseries, which adapted the next two novels. To the best of my knowledge, it's the only time any of the sequel novels have been made into movies, so... Imagine if David Lynch tried to make Dune Messiah. I want to see what happens when Jason Momoa comes back for Dune Messiah. I mean, David Lynch might have been more suited to adapt God Emperor. He could do some things with Sandworm Leto. But yes, we will indeed be taking a look at the Children of Dune Sci-Fi Channel miniseries adapting Dune Messiah and the book Children of Dune. 
because we just don't have enough Dune in our lives as of yet. So we'll be doing that next time, and then after that, we will be doing a show about the scores for all of these adaptations, because that's the one thing in this film that we haven't talked about yet, and I think we're going to have some opinions when we get there. Do you have some opinions? Not really. I haven't actually listened to the score yet. I've only heard it in the movie. Yeah. (laughs) But we'll get there. That's another show. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can find us at NontoxicFanboys on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email us at NontoxicFanboys at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash nontoxicfanboys. You can find all of this info, plus every episode of the podcast and all of our other accounts, like our YouTube channel, our Twitch channel, and our Discord server, all listed at our website, nontoxicfanboys.com. The theme music to this podcast is Discovery by Alexander Nakarada. Details are in the episode description. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. I mean, the characters don't have to explain to each other what the Landsrod is or the Padishah Emperor of House Corino. The hell did I just say? Corino? Whatever.